Where does evil come from? Why does God allow evil? We read that we are created in God's image. We are created without error. This podcast will explore a diverse range of topics spanning from discussions on Kabbalah, the law of assumption, oneness consciousness, and conversations about the truth concerning Jesus. If any of these topics upset you, this podcast might not be for you. My aim is to spark insights into spirituality, into metaphysics and the intersections of the various belief systems. However, if you're a follower of negativity, hatred, or fear, this episode may touch upon some uncomfortable areas for you. I will attempt to dispel misconceptions and to illustrate that every belief system has two faces, good and evil. Often we perceive only the negative aspects of other people's belief systems while idealizing our own. My hope is to encourage you to look beyond these preconceptions, fostering a connection with God rather than being a believer of systems of men. So where does evil come from? Part one, being created in God's image. We are created in his image, but who is he? What does he look like? What is he like? The idea of directly perceiving or seeing God, especially in a tangible or visual form, is a complex nuanced concept found in various spiritual religious traditions. And some perspectives of this challenge and also some perspective of the possibilities associated with perceiving the divine are as follows. Transcendence and immanence. Many religious traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Vedanta, Hinduism, etc. posit that God is transcendent, beyond human comprehension, beyond sensory perception. This perspective seems to suggest that the true nature of God is beyond the capacity of the physical senses and beyond the intellectual mind. God is expressed in attributes and qualities that can be described as the quantum and the whole, the alpha and the omega from everlasting. In the Bhagavad Gita, for example, I am the super soul, O Arjuna seated in the hearts of all living entities. I am the beginning, the middle, and the end of all beings. In Kabbalah, the Ein Sof, the infinite, that which is boundless. According to Vedanta, God is infinite existence, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss. In Christianity, God is I am, and exists in three distinct forms, the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. The same traditions also emphasize the imminence of God, suggesting that the divine is present within all aspects of creation. In this view, we are encouraged to seek to perceive God through inner contemplation, or spiritual practices, especially through prayer or communication and connection. 
For example, in the Vedas, it says, in living beings, I am the living force. In the Bhagavad Gita, of vibrations, I am the transcendental, I am. Or in the Bible, I am a God who is everywhere and not in one place only. No one can hide where I cannot see them. Do you not know that I am everywhere in heaven and on earth? We can also perceive God through mystical experiences, for example, through inner realization. Mystical experiences are often associated with a deep meditation or prayer or contemplative practice. Mystical experiences provide a profound inner realization of the divine. These experiences may involve a sense of unity or oneness, a complete transcendence of the ego, or a direct connection with a divine presence, such as a vision of the Divine Mother or meeting Jesus Christ. Those who have undergone mystical experiences often describe them as ineffable, beyond the scope of language. There is no language to describe what they have experienced. The difficulty in articulating these experiences underscores the challenge of expressing encounters with the Divine there seems to be no language of this world that can accurately describe the experience experiencing God in his various forms. What we know is that a personal experience takes an individual from a state of disbelief or from a state of belief to knowing, to a state of simply knowing. An exclusive focus, however, on chasing this mystical experience might distract a person from the broader perspective of the spiritual journey and from God's goal for us, which is communion with Him on a day-to-day basis. A fixation on a mystical experience can inflate the ego instead of reducing it. Individuals may develop a sense of spiritual superiority or become attached to the extraordinary, diverting their attention from the essence of humility, which is the greatest virtue, the virtue needed for connection with God. When the mystical experience becomes an end in and of itself, there's a greater risk of stagnation in spiritual growth. Letting connection and love of God be the primary goal prevents the stagnation. We can also perceive God in prayer, meditation, and stillness, in inner silence. Practices such as prayer and meditation aim to quiet the mind and facilitate this inner peace and inner stillness. The idea is that in the absence of mental chatter, we may become more attuned to God's small, still voice, to the subtle spiritual dimensions. And prayer is an intimate communication straight from the heart to God. And you might recall that the Bhagavad Gita, for example, told us that God is in the heart. So while sensory perception of God might be elusive, people do report experiencing God. For example, people report experiencing a profound sense of connection, peace, light, 
and especially love, a feeling of love of a different and greater kind, as well as a divine presence during moments of prayer, moments of meditation. Awareness of being, oneness and bliss are common reports of experiencing God. These representations give us an idea of whose image we are created in. Whose image are we created in? Awareness, oneness, and bliss. Many religious traditions use symbols and images or archetypal representations as a way for individuals to connect with the divine. These symbols serve as inter intermediaries, helping to convey aspects of the divine that are otherwise challenging to grasp directly. Have no idols means to not replace God with an idol of any kind, including imagery. But it also includes all things that we worship and chase instead of placing a connection with God first. So that means that money, uh, fame, and anything that we want, and by placing it in front of God, that means having an idol. It doesn't mean that if you have a representation of Jesus on a cross, as in the crucifix, that you have made an idol, since the connection with God is the primary goal. So this is not an idol. The way people conceptualize and seek to connect with the divine varies greatly across cultures and belief systems. And symbolic representations often play a significant role in bridging the gap between the finite human mind and the infinite nature of God. We can find a variety of different ways to connect, and they all have in common to direct us to the place within where our personal experience reveals God's nature to us. The inner experience gives us the nature of God, not the imagery. And the understanding of God involves faith, a belief in the unseen, a belief in the unknowable. Faith acknowledges that certain aspects of the divine remain mysterious and beyond the grasp of human comprehension. The paradoxical nature of God being both transcendent and imminent challenges individuals to embrace a sense of awe and humility in the face of the divine mystery. The nature of the divine transcends ordinary sensory experience, making it challenging to express them in concrete terms. The emphasis often lies in this inner realization symbolic representations and the acceptance of the mystery that surrounds the nature of God. Understanding this, we have a better idea of whose image we are created in. This is more than the body, more than the mind, more than the emotions. The attributes show us qualities that are more than the sum of our physical, mental, and emotional aspects. These attributes often point to a deeper understanding of our spiritual essence, our spiritual essence, and the image in which we are created. Central to the understanding of the divine attributes is the acceptance of mystery. The nature of God is often described as mysterious and beyond full comprehension. Embracing this mystery 
invites humility and a recognition that our understanding is finite in the face of the infinite. The journey towards spiritual evolution requires surrender, not to external authorities or dogmas, of course, but a complete spiritual surrender to the divine within. This surrender involves letting go of the ego's control and aligning with a higher transcendent reality. Part two, am I God of my reality? This segment is added for individuals who use the law of assumption. I am God of my reality is a catchphrase that is created by something called the law of assumption and their coaches. Now, is there any spiritual basis for this claim at all? The concept of being created in the image of God is a fascinating spiritual reflection, but does that necessarily translate into I am God? Even if only over my own small reality? Here are some considerations on the paradoxical nature of this relationship with a law of assumption follower in mind. First of all, image and substance. This analogy of being created in the image of God suggests a reflection or a resemblance, not an identical replica. While we carry divine qualities within us, our understanding is like the image in a mirror. It captures aspects, but it doesn't encompass the entirety of the divine substance. The challenge arises when the image perceives itself as the source rather than a reflection. Secondly, surrender and ego, which was mentioned in part one, with the emphasis on surrender being a vital aspect for experiencing God, complete surrender to the divine involves letting go of the ego's illusion of self-sufficiency and acknowledging our connection to a higher reality. Pride as seen in the belief of being the sole creator of one's reality can hinder this surrender by reinforcing the ego's desire for control and domination, the ego's desire for separation from the divine source. So while being God of our own reality might seem true and might be true to an extent, it does take us further away from the divine source in our hearts. Thirdly, the paradox of creation. This paradox specifically for the law of assumption student in mind, creation is seen as finished. Creation is finished, but simultaneously creation is seen as ongoing because you are the creator of your own reality. This encapsulates the intricate nature of our relationship with the divine while the universe and its foundational principles are established our experience of creation is an ongoing process of discovery. It's a co-creation and an alignment with the divine plan or a discord with the divine plan. If we contemplate this deeply, we can understand that we create nothing. We rearrange things. We organize creation. 
And for what it's worth, that seems to us as being a creator. We experience creativity. This is our connection to the God mind. Either we create by connection to our divine mind, or we create through a belief in separation from the divine mind. A fourth point to consider. Temporal and eternal. The reflection of the eternal nature of God and the temporal or temporary nature of our existence should inform us of the idea that part of us is eternal. The eternal aspect is derived from the divine source, while the temporary aspect acknowledges our existence within the unfolding narrative of creation. Recognizing both aspects requires a nuanced understanding of time, existence, and the divine mystery. A fifth point is there are inherent contradictions in the statement of I am God or my reality. The apparent contradictions within this spiritual truth challenges a human intellect. While the mind seeks clarity and consistency, the divine reality transcends logic. And wrestling with these paradoxes become part of the spiritual journey. A spiritual journey that involves faith, surrender, and a willingness to embrace mystery. An experience of the mystery reveals what the mind cannot comprehend. Jesus sums this up simply by saying, I and the Father are one, but the Father is greater. Finally, reflecting on these concepts calls for humility, not pride. It prompts us to acknowledge the limits of our comprehension and to approach the divine with reverence and with awe, recognizing that our understanding is a glimpse into the unfathomable. For the person indoctrinated into the law of assumption, they might only hear the first part of Jesus' sentence, I and the Father are one, and simply tuning out the last half of that sentence, but the Father is greater a very important point to bring up when it comes to am I God or my reality is to realize that most people, the majority of people, are controlled by vices to some degree. Vices, lies, false beliefs can become controlling forces that keep individuals tethered to a cycle of suffering. And breaking free from these negative influences is crucial for a genuine spiritual evolution. Experiencing our true nature as the image of God places some expectations of us, and that is to seek first the kingdom, not the vices, not confirmation bias of our lies, not confirmation bias of our belief systems. Seek first connection with God. For those who seek first the fulfillment of the vices, they will find a greater and greater sense of separation, which ultimately feels a lot like depression, or anxiety, or hatred, or addiction. For a true spiritual evolution, the shattering of beliefs is necessary. True spiritual evolution often involves a radical transformation, including the shattering of existing beliefs. It requires the courage to question and transcend conditioned thought patterns that keep us bound to mundane realities.
And it requires that we have faith in a greater sense of peace than what we currently know. For example, Neville Goddard, the Law of Assumption teacher, he began his teaching career as someone who rejected God. And he reduced God to our own wonderful human imagination. And although this is partially true, it is obviously far from the whole truth. Without God, there is no imagination. If we were not in his image, we would be like animals without creative imagination. However, later on, Neville Goddard begins to have his own mystical experiences, his own experiences with the divine, and his view of God begins to expand. And he says, So I tell you, God, who is love, endures. Everything is going to pass away. It will simply pass from the earth, but love endures forever. Everything else is an attribute of God. Faith will be fulfilled. Hope will be fulfilled. They are attributes of God, who is love, endures forever. Just like Neville did when he began his teaching career, we often fashion God in our image instead. Authentic spiritual growth involves more than repeating a catchphrase like, I am God of my reality. It requires more than repeating affirmations. It requires inner work, self-reflection, and the cultivation of virtues. This process leads to a profound shift in consciousness. In Matthews chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. This is called vain repetitions. Vain repetitions are affirmations or prayers spoken without a genuine inner desire for connection, without any transformation made. I am God of my reality is an affirmation that is repeated without a deep understanding or experiential connection. Mere repetition without genuine inner work keeps individuals trapped in the cycle of mundane existence. The wheel of samsara and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the wheel of samsara suggests that we are in a cyclical existence that is bound by illusions, by vices, and the repetition of conditioned patterns. This can be seen as a state of being controlled by external and internal influences. Before our liberation, we are in this cycle, and the Eastern belief is that we must strive for this liberation by methods of, for example, meditation, charitable works done with a focus on God, and so on. In Kabbalah, the same cycle is viewed as an upward spiral where greater and greater connection and harmonizing will eventually lead us to bringing God to earth. Escaping the cycles of samsara or the continuous cycle of birth and death or rebirth as in Hindu and Buddhist traditions is a challenging spiritual journey. And likewise, the pursuit of bringing God to earth as in Kabbalah is challenging to the point of impossible due to our nature as human beings. Psalm 50 says, For every beast of the forest is mine. 
the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. This verse emphasizes the comprehensive ownership of God over all creation. This assertion carries two essential truths. First, that everything belongs to God. And secondly, that God is self-sufficient and requires nothing from us. This is important for our journey. God's self-sufficiency means something. The statement, I don't need anything from you, emphasizes that he does not need our works. God, as the creator, as the sustainer of all existence, lacks nothing. This profound truth challenges the human tendency to perceive our actions as fulfilling the need of God. In truth, we can only receive. Instead, any service or contribution we make to God's kingdom is an expression of His love for us. It's an expression of His grace extended to us. Meditate on this. Recognizing God's ownership and self-sufficiency guards humans against pride and arrogance. It reminds us that any role that we play in God's plan is a privilege and we must approach it with humility. This understanding prevents the misconception that God depends on our efforts, fostering a more accurate perception of our relationship with the divine, eventually a deep reverence for our role as God's vessels can emerge and an understanding that our experience here is meant to be holy, to be harmonious. Discord begins to feel like a sin the more you understand that our experience here is meant to be holy. God's nature includes sovereignty, self-sufficiency, and the gracious nature of any role we may play in his divine plan. How do we break the cycle of samsara? Breaking free from the wheel of samsara according to tradition involves a conscious effort to transcend mundane cycles, to overcome vices, and to cultivate virtues. This liberation requires a commitment to inner transformation. But contrast this with God's ownership of all creation and his self-sufficiency. Everything belongs to God and he has no need that humans can fill. Service to God is an expression of his love and grace for us rather than a necessity. Human efforts alone are insufficient. It is through divine favor that individuals can attain moksha or salvation or spiritual liberation. Trust in the understanding that God's love is unconditional and is not dependent on human merit. Faith involves accepting that God's grace is freely given out of love and mercy, regardless of individual deeds. Jesus says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, 
for you are all one. Each one of us is responsible for seizing our judgment of others and choosing the path of love and surrender. God makes no distinction. If you are Hindu, if you are Christian, I know it's easy to sit and judge in all our self-righteousness. However, our commandment is always to love no matter what, not to judge. Escaping samsara or escaping hell, it is not up to us in as far as obeying any law or observing rituals. He cares nothing about that. Do you love him? Do you communicate regularly with him? Do you love your spouse? Do you love your children? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you love your enemy? There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord to all, bestowing his grace on all who call on him. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. This is how we can all be free, liberated. This is moksha, not by our own works, by his works. When we extend an invitation to God and invoke his presence in all situations, a profound transformation unfolds within us. Divine guidance becomes a constant companion and bliss permeates our existence. In this state, experiences of peering beyond the veil of ordinary perception begins to manifest. We no longer merely perceive things and people as separate. Instead, our vision transcends the material and it allows us to witness the presence of God in all aspects of life. So are we God of our reality? Certainly, I and the Father are one, but the Father is greater. Part 3. Reflected Consciousness Why do we use this term image, created in God's image? Why aren't we created as exact replicas of the divine? Why aren't we carbon copies of God? Consider this analogy again of a mirror reflecting our own face. Just as a reflection can't see us direct directly, we also cannot perceive the one casting our image, but we can know him through his reflection, ourselves. And this leads us to our role in God's experience. God created the Garden of Eden, a paradise, and yet humanity quickly introduced chaos through a series of mistakes. This is according to Abrahamic mythology. You can find similar mythologies all over the world. We are God's beloved children and he experiences the world through us. He did not in fact create evil, he created perfection. As evil is not a thing, it is not a tangible thing. Rather, we introduced evil into creation by making an er erroneous assumption in our relation to God. In this sense, you could say that evil is an error of relationship. Every time we create pain or suffering by our belief in separation, it is akin to sinning against God. We are as him in his image and our suffering is his suffering then. So when we suffer, we create suffering for God. 
In this view, our task is to manifest joy and bliss and connection with God. But often, when we feel discontent, we mistakenly blame God for our suffering. This reversal of cause and effect stems from the mirror image analogy and our confusion about what it means to be created in His image. This confusion about who He is and who we are, who is the cause and what is the effect. That's our confusion. In reality, we are the cause of the suffering by our mistake. And the effect is God is experiencing suffering through us. There is a divine purpose. Embedded in the concept of being created in God's image is a call to recognize the divine. The divine within ourselves and acknowledging our collective creative power and to strive to manifest that allows joy and a connection to the consciousness of God. In embracing this perspective, we find a deeper understanding of our purpose and the impact of our thoughts and actions. We're going to come back to the law of assumption now and a concept called everything is yourself pushed out and we're going to introduce a concept of Kabbalah called Sefirot. If you don't know what the Sefirot are, I have made another video on this concept. For the purposes of this video, I'll keep it brief. Sefirah are divine attributes. Specifically, we're going to talk about a sephira called Yesod. Yesod on the Tree of Life is a sephira that has a role in shaping our inner experiences and it overlaps with the Law of Assumption concept of everything is yourself pushed out. That's why we're talking about it. Yesod is a reflection of within our inner world. It's often associated with a subconscious mind. It reflects our inner world of thoughts and images and impressions and it serves as a bridge between the conscious and the deeper aspects of our psyche. When we begin a path of spirituality, we begin a path of conscious creating, we encounter overwhelming thoughts. For a person meditating, this is very noticeable. Beginners in meditations may encounter a flood of thoughts when attempting to quiet their mind and turn inward. This phenomenon is related to the activity of the attributes of sephira called yesod, or everything is yourself pushed out. This is where the unprocessed contents of the mind becomes apparent to us. Neville Goddard's concept of everything is yourself pushed out theory is basically uh, suggesting that our inner reality reflects as our outer reality. Our inner state manifests out. The creation of what goes on around us is a product of our inner beliefs. So this is why it aligns somewhat with the understanding of the Sephira Yesod. The foundation for external manifestation begins here. It begins with the understanding of the subconscious. Although we do not create anything, as we mentioned, creation is finished, we do project out our inner demons, or we project out our inner purity of consciousness, perhaps. There's a lot going on in the subconscious mind. There are karmic seeds, there are programmed beliefs from my childhood, opinions, there are likes and dislikes, and all of this unconscious mental material expresses itself as our personal experience.
I've made another video explaining in more detail how the subconscious mind works. Clearing Yesod or the Sephira called Yesod involves learning how to relax, learning how to create a stable foundation for higher spiritual work. Relaxation is a fundamental step in gaining control over the barrage of thoughts, negativity, and impressions in the subconscious mind. Prayer brings attention on the divine aspects of our consciousness. It nurtures the divine aspects of our consciousness. And this attention on the divine will do most of the work for us in clearing our subconscious mind. And when clearing our subconscious mind, prayers to God will be more effective than any affirmation ever will be because God does the work for us. The Yasod is a sort of lower down. There's a hierarchical progression of spiritual development and a clear and harmonious foundation in Yasod paves the way for exploration of higher sephira, higher consciousness. The upper sephira represents higher consciousness. As the foundation in Yasod becomes clearer, it opens the path to exploring higher sephira, such as Bina, which is the divine mother or the Holy Spirit, and Chokmah, which is the Christ consciousness. This journey involves transcending the initial barrage of thoughts and beliefs and delving into deeper spiritual dimensions. The pure love, the awakened consciousness needs a stable foundation. It needs a harmonious yesod, free of false beliefs. For the law of assumption practitioner here, mastering your everyone is yourself pushed out creates a stable foundation for realizing higher levels of consciousness. To learn more about each sefirot, you can find videos specifically for that. For the purposes of this podcast, Yesod is associated with a foundation and connection. It is highlighted as a challenge in consciousness. And it is lower on the consciousness scale, if you were to imagine a scale. And when it comes to law of assumption, manifestation, everyone is yourself pushed out. Individuals at this particular point in their journey may find themselves easily misled by their own minds. This is caused by the lower state of consciousness that is associated with Yesod. Eventually, what is necessary to transcend the state of consciousness is the complete obliteration of beliefs. This is the ultimate purification. There is only one truth, and it will be experienced as consciousness elevates. Beliefs cannot be preserved for this elevation. The journey there involves a denial of evil and to manifest only good. Focusing on manifesting only good and denying unwanted negativity, denying pain, denying suffering for the sake of always turning inward towards God will clear out the subconscious. God did not manifest evil 
evil is introduced by us as a relationship error. While in this phase, hold fast to the perspective that negativity is unreal, emphasizing the importance of maintaining a positive God-centered focus. Your consciousness will elevate. And a caution here against manipulation while you are in the phase of mastering E-I-Y-P-O where everything is yourself pushed out or the Yesod. Be careful of falling into the trap of manipulating or dominating others. Coaches will tell you no one has free will in your reality. Avoid this perspective. Humility is the only path that allows us to move through our subconscious mind fully. The state of mind will remain in yesod. It will remain struggling with everyone as yourself pushed out until the idea of others as a threat to be dominated is fully relinquished. There are stages of understanding that is revealed to us as we move through the sephira, the emanations, the divine attributes. And the first four sephira involves realizing our place in the world. It involves understanding cause and effect. And the next three higher up sephirot focus on balancing kindness with sternness. The understanding of these emanations lie in how to apply these qualities in a perfect balance. The stages are not really linear. The stages of evolving consciousness are not linear. It's more cyclical. You reach the end and you begin again on a new cycle, setting the stage for higher understandings yet again. The top three sephirot and, or attributes of divinity are Keter, Chokmah, and Bina, which can be freely associated with the manifestation of the Holy Mother Jesus Christ or Christ Consciousness or the Holy Spirit, a total divine consciousness. And that of course is the goal. You reach the top three, you have reached liberation, moksha. Part four, the works toward liberation through reincarnation. Reincarnation is the concept that through lifetimes and lifetimes we progress closer and closer to our own liberation. Every lifetime begins again with another chance at seeing through the veil, another chance at realizing God's eternal love and holding fast to that love and making it first in life. Hundreds of thousands of lifetimes is spent in very low states of consciousness where greed, anger, lust, or other obsessions and mental preoccupations have first place. With each new life, there's an opportunity to move closer to our own liberation. Unfortunately, with a low consciousness, there is a near impossibility to see the benefit in a lifestyle that promotes only loving connections. Each state of anger, each state of lust, and so on, can only see its own justification and cannot see out of that state. These phases involve grappling with these qualities and the feeling of separation from the divine that it creates. This is known as the veil of illusion or the illusion of separation. 
The veil causes blindness. We simply cannot see out of the state that we are in. The soul, through these varied experiences, nonetheless engages in a continual process of growth, seeing both sides of a situation through direct experience and eventually through deliberately seeking and understanding and ever so gradually ascending towards a higher state of consciousness. And this takes a very long time. This next segment involves the removal of the need for reincarnation and this segment may not immediately resonate with your consciousness, with your current state of mind, but I pray that it finds a place in your heart unveiling its mystery within you. Remember, the veil causes blindness in us. Be aware of this always. We come here to the introduction of Jesus, the Messiah. A reincarnation is not accepted within the Christian church. You might imagine that the introduction of reincarnation can be attributed to the serpent in the Garden of Eden in the Old Testament. And you can imagine that the removal of reincarnation happens to be linked to the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. If you don't yet know why Jesus came, or if you believe that he is merely a representation of a certain level of consciousness or an ascended master or nothing else, there are uh, valid explanations for why you believe that. This is humanity's most significant blind spot. This truth is guarded by gatekeepers that prevent clarity. Jesus is certainly historical. He is certainly factual. We know this. Some people will argue that he is not real, but history tells us that he is. He is mentioned outside of the New Testament. For example, he is mentioned in Jewish texts, in Barakot 17b, in our open places that we should not have a child student who overcooks his food in public, who sins in public and causes others to sin, as in the well-known case of Jesus the Nazarene. It's just an example of Jesus being mentioned in multiple places in a historical context from that era by people who were contemporaries of Jesus. Enough, that's just proving that he is a historical fact. Now, the fact is also that the New Testament considers of many first-hand accounts. And by and large, this is of monumental importance because we do not have a lot of spiritual texts that are first-hand accounts of God, other than as an experience, an enlightenment experience. This is different. Imagine if God came down in person and stood in front of you today as a real person, not as an awakening experience, mind you, but as a real person and you spent years walking alongside with God and you started writing down your experiences, you would have no idea that 2,000 years later a religion would be created from this. Just imagine the massive implications of having first-hand accounts. At this time, Christianity did not exist. There was no legacy of millennia of myth to uphold. Just simple first-hand accounts of the man that a few apostles followed, a man whom they fully believed to be the Son of God and the Messiah. 
there is more than enough evidence for the factual Jesus, historical Jesus, and yet most spiritual people believe that he is a myth, that he didn't exist, and it is just a representation of consciousness. They believe that there is something called Christ consciousness, but no historical person called Jesus. And that this is a level of consciousness to strive for, but nothing else. It is a funny way to believe since it is a contradictory belief. On one hand, it means that one believes that oneself is able to attain godhood, but not that God is able to attain manhood. A belief in the mystical, but not really. I say that this non-belief is based on fear and on blindness of the veil of separation. If Jesus was a historical being, which we know that he was, he had at minimum some kind of higher level of consciousness coupled with the ability to perform miracles. We can see that from historical accounts. Then it is also possible that he was who he said he was. There are first-hand accounts from both the Apostle John and from Jesus' brother James of meeting Jesus after he was dead. That's first-hand account of the resurrection. Let's talk about reincarnation in the Bible now. Is it in the Bible? Well, in ancient Orthodox Jewish and Christian writings, a reincarnation is in fact a fully developed belief. It's often overlooked today and Christians don't really know about this. The common concept is that reincarnation is exclusively a Hindu or Buddhist perspective, but it is not. It is a tenet of Orthodox Judaism that extends into Christianity. The apostles, for example, whom we have first-hand account writings of, believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but doubts lingered in them. But there is a prophecy in the book of Malachi that states, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. If Jesus was the Messiah, Elijah should have preceded him. Jesus clarified this by saying that Elijah has come already and they knew him not. Linking John the Baptist with Elijah. This means that Elijah reincarnated as John the Baptist. This is in the Bible. The logical connection between Jesus as Christ the Messiah and reincarnation is evident in this case of Elijah, at least. These are scriptural facts. So reincarnation is not just a demonic belief, that's what Christians think, and that it's a demonic belief of demonic religions. No, reincarnation is present throughout the Bible. A Jewish philosopher, Philo Judaeus, who was a contemporary with Christ, wrote about reincarnation. In his words, the air is full of souls. Those who are nearest to earth return to other bodies, desiring to live in them. I believe that there is sufficient evidence that Christianity and Judaism is aware that reincarnation is a spiritual truth. And for anyone Christian 
who shudders at this, at least view reincarnation not as a demonic belief from demonic religions, but as a spiritual truth of a give-and-take account and a justice system within God's created universe. Part 5. Do we no longer have to be reborn as reincarnation removed? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This means that Jesus functions as a gateway to God. Attaining liberation through Jesus instantaneously terminates all karma and extinguishes the cycle of rebirth. This concurs with Eastern mysticism. It harmonizes with the law without contradiction. Jesus arrived not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law for people of all faiths. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Reincarnation is perceived as part of the illusory realm entered into when deceived into perceiving a reality that is detached from God's love, the veil of separation. Jesus removes this veil, rendering preaching about reincarnation contradictory to his teachings. This is why the church has dismissed reincarnation. For Eastern spiritual purposes, it's akin to only the guru can give you moksha or liberation because the guru is seen as the God principle. Jesus is the ultimate guru. So the church dismisses reincarnation, holding the belief that God's truth unveiled through Jesus deems it unnecessary for salvation. Only Jesus is needed for salvation now. For this comparison of the Eastern practices predominantly mandate the presence of a guru for liberation and when viewed in this context Jesus assumes the role of ultimate guru. He assumes a much more powerful post than any guru prior because he is God, the son of God, he is guru, he is the savior and he is the messiah. No one comes to the father but through him. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And as prophesied in Isaiah 53, he becomes God's sacrifice for humanity. As prophesied, his crucifixion serves as much more than a selfless act, taking a bullet for us, ensuring eternal freedom in his name. It is also part of God's plan of redemption, as prophesied, playing out before our eyes. Christ not only paved the way for us, but became the way itself. He became the way, the truth, and the life. Union with him is the path for our evolution and our return to the Father. Not through the cyclical rebirth that entangles us further in ignorance and the cycles of sowing and reaping of karma. 
The claim that Jesus is only in our consciousness as Christ's consciousness is false. The objective truth is that he existed historically. He was born, he did live, and he did die on the cross. And since there are first-hand accounts of his resurrection, this is likely also true. This is really important for anyone who is a spiritual seeker. There is a large-scale deception obscuring who Jesus truly is from our hearts and from our minds. You might call this an evil. You might call it a relationship error. Call it what you want to. But hopefully this begins to open your eyes a little bit. By far the most important concept to internalize is that evil is not a thing that is created by God. That evil is rather a relationship error. And likewise, love is to be found within a relationship. Not only with others, but also a relationship with God. And liberation is found when this relationship is entered into with an earnest heart, with an intention to grow closer to God. Lastly, there is a sure path that leads straight to God. And that is discovered when we awaken to the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is not only the Messiah for Christians, but he's the Messiah for all people of all religions all over the world. You can come to him no matter who you are. A relationship with him is worth more than any merit-based practice. Any merit-based practice, whether it be karma yoga or kriya yoga, more than any awakening experience. And a relationship with Jesus will certainly give us more than a give-and-take account of working our way up this spiritual system. As humans in this Kali Yuga, we have lost the ability to reach enlightenment by works, by and large. There are a few people here and there who can do it, but most will never even come close to desiring it. They don't even want it. As this podcast concludes, I will finish with reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The most common lie perpetuated in the world. This includes in the world of Neville Goddard followers, in the world of law of assumption coaches, in the law of spiritual seekers. The most commonly perpetuated lie is that the Bible is not true, not real, and that Jesus is only consciousness, or worse, an ascended master. Contrary to these beliefs, these beliefs that are deeply confusing, is that there is so much documented proof that he was historical fact, and the first-hand accounts that I mentioned to verify and tell the story of Jesus. And Paul, of course, is one such first-hand account. Paul continued to preach for the rest of his life after Jesus died and resurrected. He did not retract a single word he said, even though Paul was thrown in prison for his beliefs and he was eventually executed for sticking to his story. People all over the world want to deny this, but why would that be? Here's a letter from Paul to the Ephesians. 
made alive in Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the house who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up in Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rise to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. <laughs>